sure most of you can sympathize and have experienced uh, the pain of waiting. I'm not talking merely about, you know, waiting in traffic on the 15, as painful as that may be. But, you know, the difficult sort of waiting. I know that many of you have experienced that. Many of you are experiencing it, experiencing it even now. I mean, some of you have been wanted to be married for a long time, and still you wait. I mean, some of you are waiting for a diagnosis and wondering what the results will be. I mean, some of you really want to own your own home, and maybe you're waiting for the opportunity, the day when that might be possible, or for your career opportunities to open up a bit wider. Some of you are, some of you are waiting, you know, for your children to return to the fold, or for an addiction to be overcome, or for a sin to finally be put to death, or a relationship to be mended. And some of you maybe are waiting for the political landscape to change, while others may be waiting for the other shoe to drop, uh, what seems to be inevitable. But this waiting does remind us, as one has once sung, that the world ain't the diamond that you thought it would be. But you wait, and you wait for a sign or for some news that might just even give a whisper of hope. And you've looked for this hope in so many places, and you realize that oftentimes the places that you search for it don't really offer any long-term hope, even though you're inclined to try and try again. I mean, as Phoebe Bridgers once sang, there's only so much wine you can drink in one life, and it won't save you from the fact, from the bo- it won't save you from the bottom of your glass. I mean, that everything we try, everything that we seek to find hope in in this life always comes up just a little bit empty. And so we wait. I mean, we wait for the turn, you know, the change, for something big to happen, some sort of hope to break in that will make everything all right. I mean, in a very real sense, that's why we're all here this morning, isn't it? I'm not talking about the storm or anything like that. Uh, I mean, isn't that what you want? We want some word of hope from beyond the walls of this world. Someone to tell us that it really is going to be okay. I mean, we do have such a word this morning in our text, a word of hope, an answer given to an age-old need that we all have, and whether we know we have it or not, we feel it, we experience it. But what's difficult about the text is what happens when God's answer feels like an enigma? I mean, when the answer comes to us and it's a bit of a riddle, uh, not just in the way that it's told, but in the way that it's experienced. I'm sure you've experienced that as well. Well, in some sense, it is an enigma. Yet it's the only answer that God gives us. So what then? I mean, that is the question before us. Is it enough? Will it be enough? in this life. So I want us to see first this morning a long-awaited consolation, a long-awaited consolation or relief. Choose your your descriptor. Our text begins with these two Jewish parents traveling from Jerusalem to obey the law of God. I mean, Jesus has been circumcised in verse 21 Uh, On the eighth day, according to exactly what Moses has prescribed, but the law also prescribed that women, after 40 days of giving birth, were to make their way 
to be purified, to present themselves in the temple for purification. And further, because Jesus is the firstborn son to pass through the womb, according to the law, he belongs to Yahweh. He really is, in one sense, given as a priest to Yahweh, and the father of the household is required by Torah to buy back, to redeem his son from the Lord for five shekels of silver at the temple. And it's those two events that are are coalescing in our text. Mary needs to be purified, and the firstborn son needs to be redeemed according to the law. And so Mary and Joseph have made their journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem to be faithful to the law of Moses. And as they do, they enter the temple precincts, and with no announcement, uh, no warning, no signal, some strange old man snags their kid and starts singing a song as he holds him. I mean, and this isn't a practical joke. This isn't something done for social media. I mean, can you imagine someone trying to pull this off in our day and age? Uh, you know, you'll notice he isn't just a stranger, Simeon, to Mary and Joseph. He's a stranger to us. We've never heard of Simeon before. And in fact, after this text, we will never hear about him again. He makes this very strange uh, uh, entrance into Scripture and exit almost immediately. And so we don't even know what to think about him. Not, even, not, not, not right away until Luke gives us enough signals to tell us that whatever this man is saying, we should trust. We should put at least a certain amount of, uh, of hope in it. Notice how Luke describes him to us in verse 25. He begins to shape our opinion of this unknown man. He learned right, uh, Simeon is righteous and devout, verse 25. In verse 25, we also learn the Holy Spirit was upon him. In verse 26, it was revealed by the Spirit. And then verse 27, he came to the temple by the nudging, by, by the direction of the Holy Spirit. And in speaking of Simeon in this manner, Luke says or he wants to, you know, if you will, prejudice us to hear Simeon and to believe his testimony, whatever it might be. Because when he speaks, yes, he's speaking as a righteous and a devout Israelite, a faithful one who has been waiting for God's consolation for the nation. But more than that, when he speaks, he's not just speaking for himself, but because the Spirit is upon him and leading him, when, when he speaks, the words that he's speaking are God's very words to us. He's being led by the Spirit of God Himself. And we learn about Simeon that along with all of faithful Israel, he has been waiting for a very specific reality that goes by a particular name in our text. And you'll notice it with the definite article, the consolation of Israel. This isn't just some random thing. It's not just general comfort or this feeling of goodwill. There is an event they've been waiting for. It goes by several names in our text, and you can see it. The consolation of Israel, the arrival of the Lord's Messiah or the Lord's Christ, or what he calls later, God's salvation. It's what we read about this morning in Isaiah chapter 40 when he says, you know, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And he's waiting for a very specific time of God's comfort where he sends a very specific remedy for God's people, the Messiah, who will come and make all things well. So Simeon, this man presumably standing on the later side of old age, though we're not told, has had his eyes set to the horizon 
waiting for the appearance of God's Messiah. And we're told why. It's because he needs relief. He needs comfort. All of Israel needs comfort. The world hasn't been for him, you know, the diamond that he'd hoped it would be. The government he lives under is tyrannical. Even his local leaders are ungodly and unfair. They are corrupt. They do not fear the Lord or obey his word. But it's not just the outer world. I mean, he's weighed down by the sins of his neighbors and probably his own sins as well. The very nation of Israel lacks peace and lacks prosperity, not just because of the oppressors out there, but because of their own actions against God and how they've lived before him for countless hundreds of years. And so they've been waiting for the thing, <laughs> the change, the turn, the comfort that Isaiah spoke of this morning, a time when God would come to speak specifically bring relief for Israel. Comfort ye my people, Isaiah says. Then did you hear his word? Speak peace, speak soothing words to God's people. I mean, there are very few things in life that are better than words that carry good news. I'm sure you've experienced it. I mean, from the seemingly trivial no, you don't need a whole new air conditioning unit, you know, the, uh, to the much more serious, you know. The war's over, I'm coming home. Or your child is going to be fine. Or you are in remission. Or I forgive you and I love you. While bad news can surely break us, there's not much better than good news that brings relief. I mean, it's almost and sometimes better than the actualization of the thing. Just all of the release that it gives to you. And God is saying, speak those words over my people as soon as this day comes. So what's the news that comes to Israel? Well, apparently, it has to do with this baby that's just arrived in the temple. And according to Isaiah's prophecy, anyway, the arrival of this child means that Israel's warfare is over, that her sins are forgiven, that her shame is removed. He'll speak words, your widowhood has ended. God, who was your husband, you know, has departed from you, but that day is going to be over. He will remarry himself to Israel. Your tears will be dried once and for all. Your prisoners will be set free. Your poverty will be relieved. Your broken hearts mended. Joy and gladness for the first time in a long, long time will come rushing back into Israel on the day of this announcement. I would imagine that all sounds pretty good. I mean, depending on what your life's like, maybe your life's just always rainbows and sunshine. Uh, so you don't know the difference between a bad day and a good day. But for most of us, uh, if we take an honest assessment we all have our share of deferred hopes and strained relationships and unkept promises, I mean, by ourselves and, and by others. We have failing bodies, you know, and we have the broken hearts and broken spirits to prove that things just aren't the way that we'd hoped they'd be. 
And all of us at one level or another are just dying for relief. I mean, everybody deep down wants wholeness, even if they can't articulate what that wholeness would look like if they got it. And Israel is no exception in our text. She's been waiting for God to act. She's been waiting for God to restore her former glory and to fix the mess that they have presently found themselves in, even though the mess is largely their own fault. And here stands Simeon, cradling literally a a one-month-old, 40-day-year-old child, beaming as he sings the tenor line of Handel's Messiah, you know, comfort ye my people. It's like a mother, you know, who waits up all night until the last kid's home and then she can go to bed. He says, now I can die in peace. All is well. All will be well. I mean, Luke isn't being cute. These are on the very first pages of his gospel. And he's saying to us through these pages, Jesus is the answer. This child is the answer to the pains of Israel, to the pains that you feel. This child is going to bring relief to all that troubles you. And I hope, you know, at a certain level you believe this because it's true. I mean, Jesus is the Bible's answer to the things that are bringing you grief. But notice the answer is also an enigma. I mean, this is also true. And there's no doubt you feel that as well. Most of you in this room have put your trust in Jesus. And then all your problems went away, right? Uh, Sometimes it feels like they doubled. Or, you know, if this is the good life and the abundant life, I wonder what the bad life looks like, you know. But notice what our text tells us. There's this unavoidable clash that's coming. We go for waiting for consolation that comes, and then all of a sudden he speaks, starts speaking a different language. This comforter that we've just met brings conflict. The one who's given as an answer to the tensions of this age and the struggle we've been having, Luke says, uh, Simeon says, even in his prophecy, he's going to bring tension. He's going to cause a struggle when he comes. Your warfare has ended. That's what Isaiah tells us. And then Simeon says, and by the way, he's going to bring a war with him when he comes. I mean, it's almost as if, you know, it's like that scene in uh, Braveheart when William Wallace, the famous freedom speech, is given, and he's returning to his crew, and our our Irish friend says, uh, nice speech, so now what do you want us to do? And he says, just, just be yourselves. And he starts to ride away, and he says, where are you going? And what does he say? He says, I'm going to pick a fight. Well, that's what Luke is telling us. Simeon's prophecy is saying, this child that just arrived, he's come oddly to pick a fight in this peace that he's bringing, which seems completely contradictory. You know, this relief that's supposed to be arriving now comes with turmoil. But notice the language. He's appointed for two things, both the rise and the fall. He's going to be the cause of the rising and the falling of many in Israel. The same one who will bind up their wounds is the same one who will tear down many in the nation. He will be a sign, listen to the language, that provokes. If you have siblings, you know what this word means, right? He will be a sign 
that intentionally causes your frustration and anger. He's going to get a rise out of you. He is going to cause a fight. And he's doing it on purpose. Notice the Prince of Peace will cause a provocation. And hearts, we are told, will be stripped naked for all the world to see. Everyone will be revealed. And even Mary's own heart will be broken because of this child. Pierced through. Why? Because he comes to bring comfort. And what's odd is people don't want it when it comes, not in the way that he's offering. And so that causes, we will see conflict. He's coming, this little child, to say, by the way, I am the Messiah. I'm the King of kings, Lord of lords, God of God, very God of very God, light of light, begotten, not made. I am not only King of kings, I am God himself. And he comes with these sweeping claims concerning who he is and the far-reaching consequences of those claims. I mean, notice, if he's the king of all kings and also the Lord of all creation, I mean, those are pretty totalizing claims. And so you've got a few choices there. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you either bow the knee or you're going to have a fight on your hands, right? There's going to be a conflict. It demands a response from everyone, from the weakest to the most powerful, concerning everything that involves, that's involved in their own lives. I mean, he is coming to challenge. He's coming to challenge all of your highest virtues, all the things that you think are best about you, and he's going to say they're not good enough. And we think, well, that, that seems rude. You know, why would you say that? He's coming to challenge all of your most prized possessions and tell you, you should hold those loosely. They don't belong to you. He's coming to challenge your closest relationships and saying, even those, even the dearest ones, you have to be willing to lose for my sake if that's what's asked. To the kingdom you're building, he just says, sorry, there's only one kingdom that will stand when it's all said and done. And there's something deep within our human spirit that says, no thanks. <laughs> Even if you promise that you're bringing peace, not at that cost. I mean, think of the things that Jesus says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And a few people get offended, surprisingly, right? Uh, if anyone wants to be perfect, fine, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? I came to bring a division. I mean, if nothing that Jesus says ever upsets you or makes you uncomfortable or, you know, makes you question whether you're doing it right, you are not listening to the Jesus in the Bible. Uh, you may have created one that fits real well into your lifestyle and likes all the things that you like, uh, but the, the Christ of the Bible if you take him seriously, he says all kinds of things that you think, that can't possibly be what he means or what he wants from me. I mean, even sweet baby Jesus in this text is already a provocateur from the very jump, according to Simeon. He says, this child is going to cause rising and falling of many in the nation. I mean, this one who is truly the comfort of all of Israel, this is the consolation, the Messiah, the one who's not going to bring just peace to Israel, but to the Gentiles, he comes on his own terms, with his own demands, 
And he makes plain, only the weak will be made strong, and only the poor will find wealth, and only the needy will be rescued, and the humiliated and shamed, only they will be exalted. Only the ones who see that their kingdom building has always been slanted toward them and not toward God. It's been for them and by them and unto them, and only those who see that and then repent of it have any claim on this Messiah. I mean, think of how hard it will be for religious Israel to hear that the comfort and salvation they've been waiting for for such a long time, those who have been righteous and devout like Simeon, that the salvation and comfort he's bringing, he's going to give just as freely to tax collectors and prostitutes as to them. And then what's worse, what makes matters worse, as soon as he's done doing that, he says, you know, I'm also going to dole it out to the Gentiles willy-nilly. They can have a piece of it too. And all of a sudden, righteous Israel begins to recoil at this Messiah. But they'll have to be willing to relinquish their status and their claim and become as needy as every other recipient if they want to get in. I mean, it's hard to take. But it's not any harder to take then as it is today. I mean, Christ comes in this text offering you comfort. So do you want it? Again, part of us says yes, and then we also know like there's going to be something here I don't like about this comfort that's being offered. I mean, you want release from your sorrows and the forgiveness of sins and a future that is secure and certain. And Jesus says, then repent of your virtues. Stop hoping in any of your qualifications. Get low and see that what I bring comes with totalizing demands. Everything you are and do belongs to me. And I will not be remade in your image or your likeness, and I will not bend to your whims or wishes in order to serve your version of your best life now. And of course, a Jesus who makes those kind of claims on everything in your life (laughs) uh, makes it awfully hard to stay neutral uh, and say, well, like, you know, I don't have a deep opinion of him. Uh, I just think he's a good guy, a good teacher, you know, someone we should really emulate. No one thought that way when they met Jesus. That's only something you can think thousands of years later when you've completely forgotten what Jesus actually said, did, and how he acted. He attracts or he repels, and in that action, all hearts are revealed. And that's what the text says, right? Simeon says he's going to reveal all hearts when he comes. Christ plans on being honored over all, and he makes claims. He says, I own you. You belong to me. Therefore, I want all of you and all of your stuff and all of your being and all of your dreams and all of your hopes. Those are all mine and there's something in us that, that does cause a response. You're either going to say, I trust you as the owner of all that, and I know that you're good and your ways are right, and I can put all of my trust and hope in you. Or you're going to reject him because he isn't acting according to your dictates. Or he let you down somehow. But of course, that letdown is always in relation to what you thought he owed you and not the other way around. I mean, so why do this? Who would actually entrust themselves 
to this sort of salvation. I mean, if the comfort he brings doesn't bring immediate comfort, like he's, you know, like, like we imagined, why would we even have the audacity or the desire to follow a Christ like this? Well, first, because you do need comfort. I mean, you need it bad, and I'm sure you know that. But second, we tried our way. And look around. I mean, this is what it got us. Uh, if you think more of the same is going to change the outcome, I mean, just read history for a little while. You don't even have to cover uh, that many years, and you'll see human history has this strange way of repeating itself. All of our fixes and attempts have not solved the problem. Your way does not work. You need relief. You need relief even, or maybe even say, especially from yourself. I mean, how many times have you made the situation worse because of who you are? The comfort that Christ comes to bring actually deals with that problem, something you can never deal with. Here comes Jesus offering relief, and the way that he secured it is by placing himself, you'll notice, in the midst of our pain and the humiliating circumstances of being born through a bloody childbirth that requires purification of a mother into the form of an infant human being who's completely dependent. You'll notice Jesus didn't walk himself into this temple. He's being carried. He can't even control who takes him from his parents once he gets there. But he humbles himself in this manner, submitting to the law even in infancy on our behalf until finally that humiliation brings him to a final humiliation, death on a cross also that we might gain life abundance. So that he might be able to look you in the eye and say, I promise you comfort's coming. I wouldn't do all of this to just co-sign more of the same forever. So even if you can't quite comprehend him, you should be able to look at the cross and trust him. I mean, if you think the division is an enigma... How is it that salvation comes by death, the death of God for us? The riddles of God, Chesterton says, are more satisfying than the answers of men. And while it doesn't look like an abundant life at present, brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. We do wait. We wait for a day of relief, but we only wait because He waits, and He waits because He is kind and merciful and good so that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He waits. I mean, He waited so that you would be here. Therefore, the Lord waits, we are told in Isaiah chapter thirty. The Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all those who wait for Him. Or as Paul says, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap. We shall reap an abundance of rest if we do not lose heart. So may you trust the Savior who comes in this way 
to bring you a comfort that, yes, you can't quite see yet, but the Spirit by His grace has made known to your hearts. And even that shows His goodness. May you trust in Him this morning. Let's pray.